You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Cyber threats to river traffic have intermodal implications. Nation-state hacking by the Familiar Four, Presidential Policy Directive 20, and international norms of cyber conflict. The tragic consequences of overconfidence concerning communication security. Australia's new cyber laws are more legal hammer than required backdoor. A campaign of ATM robbery nets millions worldwide. A cryptocurrency speculator sues the phone company, a spyware firm sues a former employee, and the dread pirate Roberts would like a pardon. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, August 16, 2018. The FBI is warning of cyber threats to a sometimes overlooked sector of transportation infrastructure, inland waterways. Those include the rivers, canals, dams, locks, and intermodal facilities that serve water traffic in the U.S. There's a great deal of ship and barge traffic in U.S. rivers, especially in the Mississippi Basin, and the disruption to that traffic would have an intermodal ripple effect on road, rail, and air transportation. NSA alumnus Rob Joyce gave an account of nation-state hacking at DEF CON last week, The rogues' gallery was populated by a familiar four, Russia, China, North Korea, and Iran. Espionage is pervasive, to be sure, but the four countries have distinct interests. Russia is heavily invested in traditional espionage, in developing the potential for cyber sabotage, and in pursuing disruptive information operations against its targets. China, whose activities have subsided somewhat, but which can be expected to return to or exceed their former vigor, should a full-blown trade war with the U.S. erupt, has typically been interested in industrial espionage, in the theft of trade secrets for the benefit of Chinese industry and the country's larger economic place in the world. Iran has recently been preoccupied with working against regional rivals, particularly Sunni Muslim powers like Saudi Arabia, but they have shown an interest in U.S. targets in the recent past. Joyce doesn't call this out specifically, at least as his remarks are being reported, but many think Iran likely to return to direct theft and financial fraud as renewed sanctions bite deeper into the country's economy. In this, Tehran would be following the unfortunate example of Pyongyang, whose North Korean hacking teams operating as the Lazarus Group and other threat actors have long been involved in fraudulent wire transfers and other forms of bank account looting. A recent example of what appears to be a North Korean campaign of theft has been seen in the looting of ATMs associated with India's Cosmos Bank. $13.5 million is said to have been drained from machines in some 28 countries. 
This particular raid, as computing and other sections of the international press are pointing out, came shortly after an FBI warning that something like this was afoot. The investigation is still young, but the early signs point toward the DPRK's Lazarus Group. President Trump is reported to have loosened, in various unspecified ways, the constraints on U.S. retaliatory cyber operations that have been in place since President Obama's promulgation of Presidential Policy Directive 20. PPD 20 is secret, but in outline generally familiar, thanks to illicit leaking and more or less licit hinting, too much of both, probably. PPD-20 is said to have established some guidelines under which the U.S. might undertake to hack foreign targets. It's thought that the current revision to the policy PPD-20 embodied probably take the form of greater delegation of authority to conduct offensive operations in cyberspace. Relaxation of certain restrictions seems consistent with public comments from U.S. Cyber Command, particularly General Nakasone's remarks about just what it means for the military to be sworn to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. The problem of nation-state hacking has prompted renewed calls for a better, clearer set of international norms for cyberspace. These might be modeled on the existing laws of armed conflict. We heard from the Cloud Security Alliance, the CSA, on the matter via email. The CSA's CEO, Jim Rivas, said, quote, the CSA perspective is that we would like to see an international dialogue on the use of cyber weapons in warfare. Computer technology was long ago weaponized, but there would be tremendous value in having a global understanding in how this can be used and clarifying that attacks targeting cyber infrastructure for civilian uses, such as hospitals, should be forbidden. We will eventually see treaties in this area as we gain a more mature understanding of the space. It's worth noting that prohibitions, really inhibitions, of attacks against targets that people use simply as ordinary human beings, and not as combatants, like medical facilities, water sources, and so on, have evolved into formal rules of kinetic conflict over the past century. Many would hope to see these extended to cyber conflict as well. The Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security recently announced the launch of the National Risk Management Center, with the mission of guarding the nation's banks, energy companies, and other industries from major cyber attacks that could cripple critical infrastructure. Phil Nerey is from security company CyberX. I think that um, the launch of the center is important. It is an acknowledgement that uh, cyber threats to our critical infrastructure are serious and that we need to handle them in a centralized and coordinated way. And we've seen, you know, over the last few months, uh, acknowledgements from the administration and from various intelligence agencies that we know the Russians have been in our critical infrastructure. We know they're targeting not just our energy uh, sector, but also other sectors like pharmaceuticals and oil and gas and chemicals. And we know that we have other adversaries like Iran and North Korea that are trying to do the same thing. So I think the idea of centralizing our response and centralizing the way we deal with these threats is a good thing. I think information sharing is a good thing uh, and coming up with some uh, common ways of defending against these threats is important. What is missing so far though, is because we've had ISACs before, we've had groups that share information across sectors about threat actors and campaigns. Uh, what we're missing though are minimum standards of due care, minimum standards of security monitoring across all these sectors. 
NERCSIP was a good first step, but it's just for the energy sector. And it was designed a couple of years ago before these more sophisticated threats came into play. Um, so it's missing some key things like being able to monitor a network continuously to detect a breach or an intrusion. If we were to look at NISD, the Network and Information Systems Directive that the EU put into place in April, um, that would be more, I think, what we need in terms of giving the industry guidance on comprehensive set of minimal requirements for security. Now, you had uh, some uh, points you wanted to make about Fancy Bear specifically. Uh, you think there's some things that folks may be overlooking? Well, the thing about Fancy Bear that's interesting is, you know, different uh, industry groups have been tracking them for years. If you look at the group, they have a long history of doing nefarious cyber things across the world, right? They, in July 2008, they hacked uh, Georgian ministries in advance of a Russian military invasion. It was probably the first time we saw a coordinated cyber and kinetic attack. Um, in 2011 to 2014, they infected U.S. energy firms with black energy malware. Uh, in 2015, they destroyed equipment belonging to a French broadcaster, TV5. They made it. Uh, they tried to make it seem like it was. Uh, an Islamic terrorist group, but later we found that it was them. Uh, they compromised German Bundestag members in 2015. They compromised U.S. defense contractors in 2015 and 16. Uh, they're more famously known for two destructive grid attacks in the Ukraine, one in December 2015, one in 2016. And uh, with the recent indictment by the DOJ, uh, related to interference in our 2016 presidential election, officers that were named in that are all GRU officers, GRU being the Russian Military Intelligence Agency. You know, in one of your recent podcasts, you, you said, you know, the goal is disruption and chaos. And if you think about, you know, disruption and chaos that was caused in Ukraine by shutting down portions of the grid in the middle of winter, I mean, I don't think anybody really died and it wasn't a catastrophe from a safety point of view or an environmental point of view, but it certainly goes a long way to creating uh, disruption and chaos in the society. We also believe that uh, Fancy Bear, or at least the GRU, was responsible for NotPetya. You know, the cost of NotPetya, the economic impact of NotPetya is in the billions of dollars, including, you know, critical infrastructure and industrial ICS um, systems that were down for days or weeks or months at a time, causing the companies to report huge losses. Um, so it's you know that, that's that's a different type of impact. That's an economic impact as opposed to a, a kinetic impact or a, a, an electrical grid impact or uh, an attempt to influence our political process. That's Phil Nere from CyberX. Foreign Policy is reporting on the immediate human consequences of inadequate communication security. According to the journal, a CIA communication system that had worked well enough in the relatively benign Middle Eastern environments, where the agency had used it earlier, failed when it was deployed for running agents in China. Chinese security services were able to penetrate it between 2010 and 2012, roll up the CIA's agents, and execute about 30 of them. Some estimates give a higher toll. China's alleged recruitment of former CIA officer Jerry Chung Shin Li appears to have contributed to the intelligence failure. 
Lee was indicted earlier this year for his alleged role in the matter. Australia's new cybersecurity laws seem to function more by penalizing non-cooperation than by mandating backdoors. So, no backdoors, but the penalties for not working with police when they ask for your help won't be chicken feed by any means. Companies that refuse to disclose customer data upon proper request can be fined up to 10 million Australian dollars, that's about 7.3 million in U.S. currency, and individuals who won't open their devices to duly constituted authority could face up to 10 years in prison. A U.S. cryptocurrency speculator says he lost $24 million in altcoin to a crook who got into his cell phone account, and that it's all AT&T's fault for not being secure enough. In fact, it's so much AT&T's fault, says the California man, that the phone company owes him damages an order of magnitude larger than his losses. He's asking for $224 million to make him whole. And remember Ross Ulbricht, the dread pirate Roberts who ran the Silk Road online contraband emporium? He's currently serving two life sentences plus 40 years without possibility of parole. As anyone in his shoes would, he's angling for a pardon, now through a Twitter account his family set up for him. He tells them what to tweet and they take it from there. The Twitter feed describes Silk Road as being not that different from eBay. Sure, there was some illegal stuff traded there, but according to them, that was mostly just small amounts of cannabis. Mr. Ulbricht's line is that his sentence is shocking and far too harsh for what he and his supporters characterize as nonviolent offenses. Mr. Ulbricht was, for example, originally suspected of selling murder as a service, but that didn't make it into his final charge sheet. There were also claims that people died of drugs bought on the Silk Road. Unfortunately, the misconduct of some of the investigators in his case will lead some to agree that the Dread Pirate Roberts is being ill-used. A Secret Service agent, Sean Bridges, pleaded guilty to stealing Silk Road bitcoins, and a Drug Enforcement Agency man, Carl Force, received six years for both bitcoin theft and for trying to extort Ulbricht. Bridge and Force... May their names be remembered for infamy. Still, it seems unlikely Mr. Ulbricht will receive his pardon. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire.
And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He's from the Sands Institute. He's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, you had a story you wanted to share today. This involves an encrypted office document using an old default password. What do you have to share? Yeah, this was a really interesting uh, case here. Now, Velvet Sweatshop is nothing necessarily associated with Microsoft, but uh, what happened was that old, old versions of Office used this password as a default password to encrypt Office documents. So in these, and I'm talking about ancient versions of Office here, when you encrypted a document, you actually didn't enter a password. Uh, you just uh, basically clicked, I want to document to be protected, as they call it. And then Office encrypted document using this password, Velvet Sweatshop. Well, uh, move forward a few years or a decade and new versions of Office still support this old format. So what they do is if they encounter an encrypted document with this default password, they'll just decrypt it for you. They won't prompt you for a password. They'll just do it for you. And apparently malware writers have figured this out. So what they will do is they'll send you a malicious document. This document is encrypted using this default password. Now, a lot of your security software doesn't know about this password. So what they'll do is um, they'll just treat as an encrypted document and forward it for you and they won't inspect it. But Office or Microsoft Word in this case, well, it knows about the password. It will open the document for you like uh, it's an unencrypted document and will run the malicious content. Now, is there any warning that any of this is going on? Does, it, does Office warn you that you're, you're dealing with a, a legacy encrypted document? Nope, they really just treat it as an unencrypted document. So really no warning here. Of course, you may get some additional warnings later as the malicious content runs, like, you know, things uh, like, for example, macro warnings and such. But it's not like some of the other encrypted emails where they, you know, within the email, they tell you, hey, this document is encrypted, then please use this particular password to decrypt it. And is there any way to protect yourself? Can you, can you disable something in Office or is this a functionality you're kind of stuck with? You're really stuck with this. I think the real protection here is to make sure that your security products know about this default password. Now, I haven't really done a survey of this, so I'm not really sure how well they protect uh, you from, from any of this. All right. It's, a, it's an interesting one for sure. It just shows you how sometimes these old things come back to haunt you. Johannes Ulrich, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And that's the Cyberwire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. Cyber.